In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis discusses the importance of Jesus' death and his resurrection, which uh, Palm Sunday foreshadows, and that is the day that we celebrate today. He writes these words. He says, the central Christian belief is that Christ's death is somehow, has somehow, put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Theories as to how it did this are another matter. Of course, I I love that uh, thought and that sentiment deeply. But uh, in another work, The Problem of Pain, Lewis uh, talks about the significance of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, which is, of course, what we're celebrating. And he he writes these words. He says, The triumphal entry into Jerusalem has been regarded as symbolic of the whole Christian life. And I, I love this line. He says, Christ is welcomed as king, but the crown and the throne are reached only by passing through Gethsemane and the cross. G.K. Chesterton, who is another critical thinker uh, in the past 100 years and in some respects is a contemporary of Lewis, um, touched on the significance of Palm Sunday in his writings. In his book, The Everlasting Man, Chesterton discusses the unique and paradoxical nature of Jesus' triumphal entry. Um, When he writes this, he says, It has all the unexpectedness of a great reversal, and it's not unnaturally associated with the idea of the turning of the world. Now, that's a fascinating idea. Chesterton uses this phrase, the turning of the world, in various contexts. Um, and so obviously it will have different meanings for depending on the context. In general, the phrase, uh, the turning of the world, can be interpreted as a metaphor for the constant changing evolution of life, right? So if, if, or if uh, Chesterton was talking about it in that respect, he would say that this unexpected or great reversal that we see um, in Jesus' triumphal entry is, is like that that we see in the world all the time. But for Chesterton, who was a Christian, uh, the phrase also has a theological connotation, referring to the idea of God's providential care and actual guidance in the world, in particular, um, in particular uh, moments, like what God is trying to bring about inside of a story. And so in this sense, the turning of the world may represent the unfolding of God's plan for humanity, Okay. Um, which is always moving towards God's ultimate end, okay? He is aiming at something, right? And so if we look at that meaning of the turning of the world, uh, Palm Sunday has this unexpected great reversal and quite for the purpose that God designed it that way. And I love this idea that God somehow uh, and and in some ways designs stories to be turned upside down. And, and I don't know if he does that, uh, I don't know if he does that just to mess with us, <laughs> right? Uh, but he does it quite often. And so it is worth thinking through. Chesterton emphasizes the irony of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, which was a symbol of humility and peace, as opposed to riding in on a horse, which would have been a symbol of military conquest. Chesterton also highlighted the fact that the crowd that welcomed Jesus on Palm Sunday was made up of ordinary people rather than uh, a crowd of dignitaries, wealthy and powerful people. He writes, uh, 
he writes that Jesus comes with a club instead of a scepter, and he caused a riot instead of a triumph. But if the only image left to us of Christ had been that image of a people shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, we might have guessed that the Galilean carpenter had ridden on a great war horse like Caesar or a Napoleon. We might have thought of him as we think of them, as a man who had made himself king by popular uh, acclamation. It's interesting how God does this because if we talk about this great reversal and the turning of the world, if we realize that the only way to get uh, to, um, to his kingship in its fullness is not just a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but instead uh, a way through Gethsemane and a, and, a, and a way through the cross, right? If we understand these kinds of things, we start to make more sense of what God is actually doing. You see, sometimes people, uh, people see an event happen and they interpret meaning into it and they assume something is going to happen when in fact something altogether different occurs. And I'm going to share a couple of those uh, ideas that are in our world um, uh, a little bit later. But the point that I'm making right now is that, is that there are times when an event occurs and there's a deeper meaning to it. There's something going on behind the scenes. And so in order to see it, we have to really look. We have to keep our minds open and our hearts open to actually see what God is doing. And I imagine that everybody who witnessed Jesus walk into um, or trot into Jerusalem on a donkey uh, had a lot of question marks over their head, right? Wondering what exactly was going on. Chesterton's point is that the image of a triumphant or powerful Jesus would have been at odds with the true nature of Christ as a humble and loving servant. And so we have a shift. We have a change that's occurring. The Palm Sunday story as recorded in the Gospels at first glance looks merely like a scene of great celebration and joy. But if we look closer as Lewis and Chesterton have done, we can see more to this story than just triumph. Palm Sunday is a reminder that the path of Christ is not actually one of comfort or ease. Instead, it's a path requiring sacrifice, a path requiring suffering, and a path that requires surrender. Jesus knew that this triumphal entry would lead him to the cross ultimately, right? Jesus knows what he's doing. We're the only ones clueless to the story uh, of course, we know it now. <laughs> we have that huge, uh, powerful of uh, that power of retrospect, right, or or hindsight. But Jesus knows that he's leading his way to the cross, uh, where he would lay down his life for the sins of the world for you and me. He knew that the people who were shouting Hosanna on Palm Sunday would soon turn completely against him. Isn't that fascinating? How many of you would do something? Uh, going through the motions of it, knowing that it's true, knowing that it's God-ordained, but also knowing that it's just going to tur be turned around on you in a couple of days and you're going to be betrayed. I'd be hard-pressed to do it, right? But Jesus marches straight in on his, on his colt, on his donkey, right? But Jesus didn't shy away from his mission. He embraced it with humility, with obedience, all obedience to his Father. 
He didn't come to be a political leader or to come to be a conqueror. Uh, He came He came to rescue us, guys. And that is precisely why he's willing to go through what he goes through. As we reflect on Palm Sunday, um, we should examine our own lives and ask the question if we are willing to follow Jesus on a path of sacrifice, suffering, and surrender. Or are we only willing to follow Jesus in victory? Are we only willing to follow Jesus when we have this great Hosanna to the King moment? Are we willing to lay down our own desires, our ambitions, and follow him wherever he leads us? You see, last week we talked about this great story of Abraham and his son and how Abraham is willing to trust God and even walk up a hill with this notion. God has asked me to give him my son. I will give him my son. He didn't walk up that hill thinking that he wouldn't give his son. As a matter of fact, he had determined in his mind, God said, sacrifice your son, that's the way it'll be. Now the consolation was that he also believed God would raise him from the dead. That's fascinating. I wish I had that faith at times. But what I love about Abraham is is that he literally walked up that hill with Isaac with the same attitude that we ought to have in walking with Jesus into Jerusalem, that not just palm branches and not just hosannas come, but a cross is looming before us, right? There is good news, though. It's not all bleak, right? The good news is that we don't have to do any of this alone. We have the Spirit of God who empowers us to live a life of surrender and sacrifice. How many of you know you need a power source outside of yourself to do it? I need some better amens. Okay, there we go. Maybe we need the Spirit to give you some amens. But still, right, we need him to empower us. We have the body of Christ, the church, each other. We have one another to support us and and to encourage. And most importantly, we have the example of Jesus who shows us in every step of his life what it means to love and serve and sacrifice. So this morning, we're going to look at several aspects of Palm Sunday, okay? And we're going to begin with the historical and theological background and significance, and we're going to do that respectively. And then uh, we're going to explore cultural relevance and the meaning for us today. And along the way, I'm going to share some insights from different scholars and different ideas that are, that are um, constantly running around with regard to Palm Sunday. So let's deal with the historical background first. If you're a note taker, this would be fun uh, information for you. The history of Palm Sunday dates back to the first century AD when the Roman Empire ruled over Israel. Now we can see when an origin story happens and we can also start to see when um, celebrations started occurring. But nonetheless, the first century when Roman rule ruled over Israel, at that time Jerusalem was a political and religious center and the temple was the center of Jewish worship. Okay, so we know what's happening there. The people of Israel were oppressed by Roman rule and longed for their Messiah to come. They longed for uh, this, this king who would save them, in one respect, to save them from their oppressors. They believed that their Messiah would be a political leader who would restore their independence. 
Now, it's important to keep that in mind because the framework that you come into a story with will, will determine how you interpret the activities or the, the things that are going on, right? If you, if you come home and you're anticipating, think, this is how fear works, actually. Um, if, if you're in the dark and you are anticipating somebody jumping out and scaring you or something scary happening, when you walk into dark places, when you walk into rooms that you don't think anybody are in, you make up meaning. You start going, who's in here, right? Have you ever walked into a dark room and said, who's in here? You, have you ever done it when you're the only one at home, <laughs> right? Like, there's nobody there, but you're making up some meaning, right? And you're letting the context and the clues around it uh, determine what you believe. And so, so you have to put yourself in the mind of a first century Jewish believer who was looking for a political leader, a political um, savior. In the Gospels, Jesus is depicted as entering Jerusalem on a donkey, again, a symbol of humility and peace, rather than on some war horse to symbolize conquest. So that had to throw people a bit for a loop. Of course, that's one thing, to, one way to look at it. There's also the significance theologically, which is a prophetic fulfillment, and we'll get there. The people of Jerusalem welcomed this Jesus with palm branches and cries, Hosanna, a Hebrew word that means, save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. Matthew 21, 9 is where we find that phrase. This was a political statement as the people saw Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah who would liberate them from Roman rule. So think about this. If you're screaming out, Hosanna, and you mean by that, you mean by that, save us, we pray, and your mindset is political, what do you mean by save? Do you see the point, right? You start to make words have different meanings, okay? And so you say, save us in this respect. This long-awaited Messiah uh, would hopefully liberate all these people and set them free. The event occurs uh, during the Passover festival, a time of great significance for the Jewish people as well. So uh, you think about what Passover represents, right? It's freedom, it's freedom from what? It's freedom from the judgment and the wrath of God, but in its context, it was a particular wrath that was set out against Egypt, Israel's oppressors, right? And so there's no way to not have a political mind with the story that you're living as a Jewish believer. So the events of Palm Sunday are recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. And the people of Jerusalem welcomed Jesus with palm branches, laying them on the ground before him along with cloaks. And, and, and they did this as he ride, rides into the city. Um, the palm branches that were laid before Jesus were symbolic. Uh, the ancient Jewish culture, uh, to an ancient Jewish culture, palm branches symbolized victory and triumph. So, so now you have a context of political victory, and now you have actions that are depicting de political victory, and you have rhetoric that is depicting um, a, a cry for political victory. They were used to celebrate military victories, and they were waved by people during the Feast of Tabernacles in Israel's history as well. This festival celebrated God's provision for Israel during their journey through the wilderness. So again, deeply connected to the political uh, 
redemption of God's people. So by laying palm branches before Jesus, the people recognized him as a king, and they celebrated his victory. But his victory over what? That's the question, right? Was it sin and death? Was it we're finally free? And the answer is yes, right? <laughs> right? The observance of Palm Sunday has taken on many different forms throughout history, but its underlying significance remains the same. At its core, Palm Sunday is a celebration of Jesus' uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and it serves as a reminder of his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. But we know that looking back on it, okay? In many Christian traditions, the events of Palm Sunday are seen as a prelude to the events of Holy Week, which culminate in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Now, put yourself into this story for a second and realize that you've got this moment where everybody's celebrating, everybody's waving palm branches and crying out Hosanna, and a week later, the one you lauded as Lord and King is hanging on a cross, bleeding and dying. What would that do to your mind? Huh? Confusion? It would wreck you, wouldn't it? It would turn things upside down. Again, the world's turning that Chesterton talks about. There's weird ideas that God is doing, and he's, and he's making a shift and making a change, and he does so in a very upside-down fashion. So, this prelude to the Holy Week. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem is seen as a foreshadowing of Jesus' ultimate triumph over death. It serves as a reminder of the hope offered to all who will believe in him. Hardly an idea that was, that was well understood while Jesus does this. The earliest accounts of, the of observances of Palm Sunday date back to the 4th century. So again, we have the origin story, and then we have times when we begin to celebrate something. So the earliest we have is the 4th century, when the holiday was celebrated in Jerusalem. According to Agaria, a 4th century Christian pilgrim, Palm Sunday was celebrated in Jerusalem with a, a procession from the Mount of Olives to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre with pilgrims carrying palm branches and singing hymns. So you've been in churches where they wave palm branches during worship or whatever it is, and all of this has echoes of, of celebrations uh, from the past. Over time, the observance of Palm Sunday spread throughout the Christian world with various rituals and traditions developing over time, as all stories do. So in some countries, the observance of Palm Sunday also includes using unique liturgical colors. In the Catholic Church, for example, red is often used on Palm Sunday to symbolize the blood of Christ. That sounds fun, right? Um, in a weird way, right? Uh, but in the Eastern Orthodox Church, green represents the triumph of life over death, okay? Which is why I wore green today. So it's fascinating because there are, there are fun meanings to what happens and fun ways that people celebrate. Another important tradition associated with Palm Sunday is the creation of palm crosses. In many parts of the world, people created these um, crosses out of palm fronds, and they carried them to processions, and then they would display them in their homes. Um, so we're going to have the kids make, no, we're not. <laughs> anyway, that would be, that'd be fun though. The palm cross is seen as a symbol of faith and is often kept throughout the year as a reminder of the events of Palm Sunday. 
Palm Sunday is also associated with special foods. Got my attention completely now. And, and drinks from certain countries. In Greece, for example, people often ate a special uh, cake called sereki. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, and it's made with spices and nuts, and it's shaped like a cross. In Mexico and other Latin American countries, people often drank agua de Jamaica. I don't know if there's alcohol, but it sounds fun. Anyway, right? It's a sweet drink. It was a red drink uh, made from hibiscus flowers. Okay, so here, here's what I'm getting at with the, with the historical significance first before we jump into theological significance. We obviously see where Palm Sunday originated. We also see when it first began to be celebrated. And we've also been able to observe a couple of expressions of that celebration. Something happens in modern Christianity, and especially among Protestants, because we're Protestants, we just love to protest and argue with each other, right? Um, and that is that we, we often look at certain traditions as more acceptable than others. I don't know why this is, because we're judgmental, that's why. Anyway, so, um, so we, we look at things as more, more acceptable than others. But what we've seen in just a, a small array of festivities is that people have looked for reasons to celebrate something and ways to celebrate it over time. And it's beautiful the way they do, because I think to God, these all look like simple um, Simple expressions to remember the story and to remember what God has done. As a matter of fact, God calls his people to do these same things. We know this in the Jewish history with, in Jewish history with regard to the Exodus. They perform certain rituals constantly to do what? To remind themselves of what God has done. We do this with communion each and every Sunday, don't we? We break bread, we drink of the juice or the wine, and it represents, uh, it represents Christ's body and his blood, but it's a reminder to us of all that he's done, which is, I believe, an amazing thing. So here's what I want you to take away from this historical reality and the expressions that follow in line with this, and that is, remember Jesus and what he has done, remember the things that he has done, any way you choose if it is honoring to him and it is and it brings glory to him right doesn't matter how you do it listen if you're if you're a person who on easter decides that you're going to celebrate and you're going to rejoice with the saints and you're going to worship god and you're going to and you're going to hear the story of jesus's uh, resurrection and you're going to be encouraged by that and then you're going to go home and you're going to hunt easter eggs do it, right? Do it. Do it to the glory of God as much as you can in, in this idea. But the point that I'm getting at is just celebrate and remember what he's done, right? Stop worrying about how people express their devotion and their uh, observations of things. I'm telling you, it gets us in more problems than it's worth, right? More trouble than it's worth, rather. Okay, so celebrate Jesus, remember him, do the things that you want to do uh, that bring honor to him and glory and, and remind you of the truth. Let's jump into theological significance. The significance of Palm Sunday extends way beyond historical things, right? Uh, the theological implications reveal, uh, reveal a, a relevant 
idea to contemporary Christian practice, so it's really important. The entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on a donkey fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. So, context again. People were looking for political rule, and yet a devout Jew was also looking for the way God would do what God said he would do uh, in their life. Okay? And so if Zechariah 9.9 portrays this idea, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a colt. If that is the picture that they have been taught, then hopefully they're looking for their savior political king slash savior that is also humble. And maybe that context is what they have in their mind, or at least some of them. This prophecy emphasizes the humility of our Messiah, who would not come as a political leader or a conqueror. We need to get that out of our head. He just didn't come for this purpose. But as a servant who would lay down his life for the salvation of humanity. So again, back to context, back to what you generate meaning, how you read into things. If you are hell-bent on an idea that Jesus comes in to respond politically, and a week from now he's going to die on a cross, and only three days later from that are you going to hear stories that he has risen from the dead, what are you going to think if your mind is fixated on political rule and reign, and all of a sudden he's dead on a cross. It's not just confusion anymore. It's, uh-oh, we backed the wrong horse, right? We're behind the wrong guy. And that is very much what people thought, or many people thought. So Jesus is a Messiah. He comes not as a political, political leader or conqueror, but as a humble servant to save humanity. Therefore, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey symbolizes that humility and his willingness to serve. Moreover, the cries of Hosanna indicate that, people's, uh, that this is the people's recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. However, there are experts. Uh, expectations of him that are misguided, as we've already talked about. They expected him to be destroyer of Rome, right? Um, and the, the one who would restore Israel's independence, but he doesn't do this. And as a matter of fact, it is still never happened. Do you know that Jesus does not promise Americans freedom from stupid rulers in America? Okay, you guys are saying amen, and you're smiling at me, but I mean, do you know it? Because it's a big difference in knowing it and just going, ah, that's awesome, that's really good, and then election season comes and you're like, Lord, where are you? And he's like, I'm right here. I'm right here. You're the one who wanted a representative republic. Anyway, okay, right, right? So they failed to recognize this mission to recognize the mission of Jesus was not to establish a political kingdom, but to establish the kingdom of God. This spiritual kingdom transcends nations, boundaries, and political affiliations. This spiritual kingdom transcends all of your political affiliations. Therefore, Palm Sunday's significance lies in recognizing Jesus as the Messiah and establishing his spiritual kingdom. It establishes humility and servanthood and a willingness for all of us to suffer 
in light of what is to come. Let me give you some, uh, some viewpoints from some well-known scholars or Bible thinkers. N.T. Wright uh, is a prominent New Testament scholar. I really do appreciate N.T. Wright. Um, like anybody, as I have told you before, and as Kathy so lovingly pointed out this morning when she referred to me, I don't disagree with these people on everything that they think. And you shouldn't agree with me on everything that I think. What you should do is agree with me that we should seek truth, right? That we should be fighting for the truth, not fighting each other, but fighting uh, to discover the truth, right? So N.T. Wright, uh, who I respect greatly, um, as a theologian, he has written extensively on the significance of Palm Sunday. In his works, he emphasizes the political and theological implications of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and, and the uses of the palm branches uh, and the donkey and even the crowds. Wright argues that using palm branches by the crowds was a powerful political statement as it symbolized Jewish nationalism and resistance to Roman rule. So there's another component to your ideas that you don't know unless you dig a little bit deeper, and that is there was Jewish nationalism and there were signs of those who believed that, okay? So this potentially could be one of the, one of the motives of the people. The crowds declared Jesus their king and called for a political revolution. This would have been highly provocative in a city that was under the dominance of Rome, right? At the same time, Wright emphasizes the theological significance of Palm Sunday. He argues that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was a prophetic act to fulfill Old Testament prophecy and to demonstrate his messianic identity. So, if your words were, uh, the words you lived by in Scripture were that our Messiah, the son of David, is going to come, he's going to be mounted on a donkey, right, and he is going to be humble, you are looking for this particular kind of person. If you lose sight of that, and the only thing you're concerned about is Rome's oppression, then all of a sudden the, the image of that deliverer begins to be morphed over time, right? Uh, but nonetheless, Jesus, every step of the way, is, is also standing in front of people going, I'm the guy. They just don't always see it, okay? But he's, he's saying it. He's showing it, right? So by riding on the donkey, Wright says that Jesus identified himself as the long-awaited king of Israel who would bring salvation and liberation to his people. Overall, Wright sees Palm Sunday as a pivotal moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. By riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and accepting the acclamations of the crowd, Jesus was actually making a powerful statement of his own about his identity and about his mission, which would lead to his ultimate sacrifice on the cross. And, the, and establish a new era in human history. Bruce Waldke, who is another uh, noted scholar, an Old Testament scolar and a theologian. Um, N.T. Wright is, a, um, is an Old Testament scholar as well, but he has a, a particular uh, field. But anyway, um, so Waldke is an Old Testament scholar and theologian, and he's written extensively on the theological significance of the events surrounding Palm Sunday. In his work, he emphasizes that uh, it, is, it is largely prophetic what Jesus is doing, 
Um, and yet there is symbolism in all of the things based on, uh, based on this prophetic meaning. Walke also sees Palm Sunday as a symbol of Jesus' humility and selflessness, despite the crowd hailing him as their king. Jesus did not seek to exalt himself or to claim political power. Instead, he rode into Jerusalem as a humble servant, willing to lay down his life for the sake of his people. Now, if you were looking for a political leader to win... Um, this would sound like a great thing that you would look for in the ethics or the character of a political leader, but what you want is actions to depict or something different. But Wolke points out that this is, this is not how Jesus approached it. Finally, Wolke emphasizes the transformative nature of Palm Sunday. He argues that the events of that day changed the course of human history, ushering in a new era of redemption and salvation. By entering Jerusalem as the long-awaited king, Jesus was settle, setting in motion a series of events, the turning of the world that Chesterton talks about, that would culminate in his death and resurrection, ultimately bringing salvation to each one of us. Last but not least, Tim Mackey, uh, is the co-founder of the Bible Project, offers a unique perspective on the theological significance of Palm Sunday, focusing on the symbolic and narrative elements of the story. So um, this is one of the things that I've pushed for a very long time, and I want you to keep hearing, and that is the Bible is a story. There is a grand story that is happening, and stories are written in certain ways. Authors have ways of writing. Uh, they have motives for writing. Uh, they have agendas in a, um, in a pure sense. They have agendas in what they want their reader to take away. And just like we've learned in Genesis, when we look at Moses being the, the dominant writer of Genesis, we realize that this story of the creation of the world and of Abraham and Joseph and all of these great stories uh, is written well after these stories have happened, right? Um, but they are crafted by a man who already has the law given, who understands a lot of things. You can see that influence in his writing. It doesn't make anything that he wrote false. It simply shows you that, that the writer has a person. He is a person. He has, a, he has an, uh, a mind and an attitude, and God allows that in much a beautiful way in the Scripture. Mackey argues that uh, the use of palm branches by the crowds was significant because it was a symbol of victory and triumph, but not in the way that many people at the time would have understood it maybe Jewish nationalism or something like this. The people were looking for a military or political victor, but Jesus had come to bring a different kind of victory, a victory over sin and death. And to Mackey, his believers, his followers, already understood that. Okay? Whether that's true or not is up to you to determine. But this is how Mackey sees it. Mackey also highlights the symbolism of Jesus' choice to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. You notice everybody talks about the donkey. Everybody talks about the palm branches. Everybody talks about the motives, all of those things, politics. He argues that uh, this was a deliberate act on Jesus' part, intent to fulfill Old Testament prophecy and to communicate his messianic idea. I am the guy. Is Jesus' goal. By riding on a donkey, he is a different kind of king, right? And he has not only come as a humble servant, but to bring peace and salvation and not political rule. Finally, Mackey emphasizes the role of the crowds in the story, and I found this to be uh, the most intriguing as I parsed through all of his odd 
statements at times. Uh, he argues that they represent a microcosm of the human response to Jesus throughout history. Now just think about this for a second. Some of the people in the crowd recognize Jesus for who he truly is, and they hail him as their king. Right? Meanwhile, others are skeptical and hostile towards him. How many of you feel that that happens today? How many of you know that people are that way even within the four walls of the church? (laughs) Some people recognize Jesus as their king. Some people are here because they think attending will get them out of hell, right? Um, Whatever that is. But anyway, so the the idea here is that there is a a view from Mackey in the narrative. Uh, In this sense, the story of Palm Sunday is a reminder that the choice to follow Jesus is a personal one, and it requires faith and a willingness to submit to his authority. Okay, so we talked about history, we talked about theology, let's talk about relevance in the contemporary world. The relevance of Palm Sunday uh, to you and I uh, lies in its call for our life, okay? It lies in its, it lies in its call, uh, in any story's call, to motivate its readers to live in accordance with the main character or whatever, right? And so we want to emulate the Jesus that we are seeing and that we are, that we are to follow, which means it is a call for humility. It is a call for servanthood. It is a call for all of those things under willingness. Ultimately, a willingness that knows Gethsemane and the cross still await. There's a beauty to the story of God and a frustration to the story of God in that God is a God who uh, tells us a story of the now and the not yet. It's a common theological idea. It was made popular by George Eldon Ladd many, many years ago. And so, um, so the idea is that there are, there are things that God has done and ushered in today, and there are things that God that will not see their fulfillment until all things are made right. How many of you know that? It's really important for you to know that this is true. Otherwise, you're going to lose sight of, uh, or you're going to lose joy and happiness and peace in the midst of the trials of life, okay? Uh, God came to set us free from our sin, did he not? How many of you still struggle with sin? (laughs) There are only two liars today that I saw. It was good. You guys are getting it. It's really, really awesome, right? So we still struggle with our sin, okay? But God set us free from our sin. Has God delivered us from the effects of death? Yes. Do we all still die? Yes. Doesn't that suck? Right? I was looking for a way around this. I read a an article that was fascinating that um, geneticists have started to collaborate with AI, which is funny. It's just AI regurgitating what geneticists have already said. But anyway, so um, they've started working with AI and they've started coming up with different ways uh, to treat sicknesses and diseases and they have projected. Now, hold on to your seats, ladies and gentlemen. They've projected that in a mere eight years, they will achieve immortality. (laughs) You know, 70 years ago, the planet was supposed to freeze. 
10 years ago, it was supposed to melt down, right? I don't know what's true, but it is fascinating, the pursuit of this. And what I love about stories like that and articles like that is that it constantly proves what God has always said. And that is, death is a thing that we were not initially supposed to deal with. It is a real part of our life, and we're constantly trying to work around it. We're trying to beat it at every turn. Even when people want to thumb their nose at God, they're still wanting to work around that reality, right? But the now and the not yet of the kingdom is still the point. And that is there are, there are things that are now and there are things that are not yet. God has come to take away our sickness and our disease. And we look at that and we say, well, that sounds like what I'm signing up for. And then many people go to their death with cancer or other sicknesses. Did God lie? There's a now and there's a not yet. So as followers of Jesus, we are called to emulate his humility and we are also to do so with peace and with surrender and servanthood with the full knowledge that things are not going to always turn out the way we would want them to in a best case scenario. There's still Gethsemane, and there's still the cross. And it's still there for all of us, according to the scripture, that cross awaits us each and every day as we take it up. Furthermore, recognizing Jesus as the Messiah calls us to submit to his authority and to follow his teachings. Grace does not mean you get out of obedience, church. Grace was given to set you right so that your obedience could be done in a glory-giving way to the Father, okay? We don't get to say, I'm saved by grace. Now I get to live like a hellion. No, you don't. No, you don't. You get to be held accountable by the body and by God's spirit and by his word, and you get to do, that happens all the rest of your life. But there will come a day when all things are completely set to rights, and it'll be beautiful. This means that we should not be guided by our desires or political affiliations, or our political affiliations, or our political affiliations, but by the principles of the kingdom of God. Otherwise, what you're doing is revealing that you still think the way people thought on Palm Sunday, the first time it happened, out of ignorance. And you're better than that because you know the end of the story. In a world that is increasingly divided among political and national lines, the message of Palm Sunday is particularly relevant. It reminds us that our allegiance is to whom, church? Jesus Christ. It is to what kingdom? The kingdom of God. It calls us to love our neighbors regardless of their nationality, of their political affiliation. Uh, It calls us to work towards establishing that kingdom each and every day in our life. In this way, Jesus has called us to this upside-down world. And I find that to be absolutely amazing. So I told you at the beginning that there are many moments in history that appeared one way, but they actually turned out to be the opposite. And this is what we need to remember, always keeping in mind, when we're reading the scripture. Because God is fascinatingly frustrating when it comes to turning the stories upside down. He's just amazing at this, right? So give you an example, and I'll, I'll dabble in some politics, but I want you to see the bigger picture. The Boston Tea Party. There's a perfect example of something that you misinterpret. Boston Tea Party of 1773 is often seen as a political act of rebellion against British rule. 
It wasn't. It was actually motivated by economic concerns. American colonists were upset about the British East India Company's monopoly on the tea trade. But if you turn that into a political affiliation, guess what you can make? Another political affiliation called the Tea Party because you missed the point. It doesn't mean that they don't have good ideas. It just means stop missing the daggone point, right? I love how many of you are looking at me like, I'm going to kill him and throw him in the harbor. Anyway, this is great. I'm good, right? Civil rights movement of the 1950s and the 1960s, often seen as a political movement. Does it today have political realities? Absolutely. But it was deeply rooted in social and cultural concerns, including the fight for equal treatment under the law, dismantling, in particular, dismantling Jim Crow segregation. Fascinating, isn't it? If you miss that, though, you'll look at it and go, if this political party believes in this, and I'm this political party, I can't support it. That just makes you stupid. I'm sorry. Sorry, that just makes you stupid. You're not thinking very well at all. I love how much you guys entertain my oddness. Anyway, Creation of the internet. Let's get off these uh, frustrating things for people. Creation of the internet. How many of you know that the creation of the internet was sanctioned by the U.S. government? How many of you know that somewhere people are going to take over the world someday? No, stop. Okay, so... It was sanctioned by the U.S. government, but it's actually sanctioned for a purpose. Do you know what that purpose was? Communication and information between scientists and researchers. That was the point. What has it turned into? I have colorful words for what it's turned into. <laughs> right? But my point is that we have an idea of what it's intended for, but then when we hear the whole story, we actually see something different. The founding of the Boy Scouts is another one, 1910 often seen as political or cultural in response to changing social norms. But what was it actually made for? Instilling values such as discipline and self-reliance in young boys. So guess what? If there's something that gets started today that is created to instill values and, and, and good ideas in people, but it happens to not look the way you like it to look or doesn't bear a Christian name or, or maybe it doesn't, get promoted by the exact political party that you love so much, what should you do? You should study it better. You should look into it. There are many things that are started by really weird people. Right? 12 years ago, I started this church. <laughs> right? So many things are started by really weird people that turn out to be all right. Jury's still out on the church anyway, right? The Protestant Reformation. The Protestant protesting, anyway, whatever. Got colorful words for that one too, right? 16th century, often viewed as political or religious in its, in its meaning or its purpose. But it's actually rooted in social and cultural concerns, including, one, a desire for greater individualism, and two, for a more personal relationship with God. It's so fascinating that most of the highest reformed people that I know in my life right now absolutely buck and resist this idea of having a personal relationship with Jesus. And it's fun how ignorant they are of their own movement and why it got started, right? It is about this relationship with our Heavenly Father and through His Messiah. 
Today, we celebrate Palm Sunday. Today, we are looking forward to the cross, and we are looking forward, ultimately, to Jesus' resurrection. But what we need to embrace, church, is that Christ, as king, has welcomed us to a crown and to a throne via Gethsemane and the cross, via suffering, via uh, sacrifice, and via surrender. It's wonderful for us to rejoice and to celebrate in what God has done. It's wonderful for us to see, uh, see the beauty after we've looked at the end of the story. But I don't want us to miss the, the greater beauty, quite honestly. I don't want us to miss the greater beauty, that the upside-down nature of God's kingdom is one that says, I can't figure out what I want to do with my sleeves today if you haven't figured it out. Anyway, it is that we are we are. And now I just lost my thought. But anyway, so we're called, this is the point of it, right? The point of Palm Sunday is is to remember what it is that we have been called into. We are not observers of some historical, political uh, power grab. That's not what we celebrate. We celebrate a, a king who came as a fulfillment of all scripture, who came humble, who came and modeled sacrifice and surrender and who has called each and every one of us to do the same. And listen to me, for us to do anything with it other than to reflect Jesus is for us to waste the most beautiful opportunity. We have an opportunity to look just like our king. We have an opportunity to reflect him right back into the world and to announce that he is king even in the midst of chaos. That he is savior, even in the midst of my sin and my frustrations. That he is one, even in the midst of daily failures that, I'm a, that I might encounter. Amen? Let's stand. As we enter into this time of communion and reflection on what Jesus has done for us. I also want us to remember that remembering sacrifice comes with worship. It's all connected together, right? Remembering Jesus' sacrifice and our call to it comes with worship, comes with a hosanna to the king, comes with a declaration or a call, save us. So let us mix these two things together as we participate in communion today. Let us remember to worship and to celebrate our king, um, but us to remember what he did for us and the call that is set before us. Lord, thank you for the day that you have provided for us. Thank you for all that you have done. We are grateful for times where we can be reminded of your goodness, reminded of your work, reminded of your humility and your sacrifice and your surrender for us. We are grateful for times when we can be reminded that the call is to us as well. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the power and the encouragement from one another to actually follow through with it. We love you and we praise you for all that you do, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.